This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Social Determinants of Health. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Social determinants of health have a huge impact on a person's life and is a major contributor to health disparities. It includes a wide range of categories such as economic stability, education, healthcare access, neighborhood and built environment, and social and community context. That's why the United States Department of Health and Human Services Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion have made social determinants of health a key focus of their Healthy People 2030 objectives. Some of their objectives include reducing the proportion of children with a parent or guardian who has served time in jail, reducing the proportion of people living in poverty, and increasing employment in working age people to just name a few. These are really tall orders, but they're a priority because of the profound impact that they can have on a person's health. So for our final webcast of 2022, we will be discussing this very important topic and to educate us about how social determinants of health impact health outcomes and disease states. I've invited Dr. Kelly Grannon. Kelly is a MedPeds hospitalist who splits her inpatient time between caring for adults at Ohio State University and kids at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Additionally, she has a master's in public health with clinical interests in health equity and global health. Kelly, welcome to MedNet. Thank you. Well, Kelly, how did you become interested in health equity and social determinants of health? 
So I spent a lot of my background in undergraduate and medical school focused on community health issues, global health and health equity. Um, and during my medical school training, I was in a combined degree program with a master's in public health, which was focused on health equity and social determinants of health. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm excited to hear what you're gonna let us know. Before we get started with today's talk, I wanted to remind you to check out our updated website at ccme.osu.edu, where you can find the full catalog of our 120 webcasts, including other fascinating topics like a few we did earlier this season, women in medicine and gender-affirming care. Our programs are also available by podcast. Just search for the MedNet 21 CME on your podcast app. Also, if you have any questions about our programs, or if you have a suggestion that you'd like to send to us, please click that button on the right, bottom right-hand corner of our webcast player to send them to us. Now let's get started. Kelly? Thank you. So I'm gonna be reviewing a broad overview of this topic of social determinants of health as really an introduction to the concept. So I have no relevant financial disclosures or conflicts of interest to share. For learning objectives, so the learner at the end of this discussion should be able to define what social determinants of health are, should be able to understand the relationship between social factors and disease states that they might encounter, and to apply population health principles to medical care and practice as well as a background to further investigate precedents to inequities that you might see in your patient population. For a few definitions, so the World Health Organization defines social determinants of health as the non-medical factors which influence health outcomes. This is a broad ranging set of criteria and includes the conditions in which people spend their entire lives and activities therein as well as the wider set of forces which shape those conditions. So this can range anything from things which exist at a community level, such as cultural expectations, as well as broader regional political and state organizations, which set political systems and development agendas, as well as environmental policies. It's a very broad reaching definition, and it encompasses a large portion of what makes up day-to-day -day life for most individuals and the wider forces which shape those conditions. So why is this important? It's estimated that between 30 to 55% of health outcomes in a population are determined by non-medical factors. This is data out of the CDC. The larger influence of this is greater than what we do in medical care and anything that is provided within the health sector. It also exceeds the impact of individual lifestyle choices that patients make. It impacts very broadly across all different types of disease states, as well as the general wellness outside of a particular disease state in the population. And then we see this highlighted, especially in moments of crisis. So some examples of this that we've seen in recent years include effects from the COVID-19 pandemic being distributed unequally across the population. 
This is similarly illustrated in incidences of natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina, where something that impacted in a broad scope of geographic area had unequal effects in different communities for a variety of reasons which link to these social determinants of health. So to backtrack a little bit and give some context to how we understand what causes disease or wellness, historically prior to an understanding based in scientific method, different theories would be proposed as to why diseases would occur and why some people were well and others were ill or died. And those included things such as miasma or bad air, divine retribution or imbalance of humors. Um, then, after development of theories based in scientific method, we saw more advanced understandings such as germ theory being able to isolate microbiological pathogens causing infectious diseases. Then the understanding had to shift to a broader scope than only infectious diseases and only things caused by traceable pathogens. So that's where we start to get into a more complex relationship of understanding between cause and effect of disease. Um, pictured here is a diagram of the epidemiologic triad. The understanding behind this triad is that an agent may cause a disease to a host, but that relationship is directly impacted by the environment in which both the agent and the host interplay. So this shows kind of the understanding initially of that these are linked, and then the more advanced understanding to see that that relationship is directly mitigated by the environment. In the next slide, we'll show a little bit more of the multifactorial approach, which is demonstrated in a causal web. Now a causal web shows this more complex relationship between factors and agents which may be contributory to a disease and the disease state itself. The example in this diagram from the World Health Organization is for skin cancer. So we know that we can trace a relationship between UV exposure, mutations in genetically susceptible individuals' skin cells, and proliferation and malignant transformation to skin cancer. But each of these steps has a complex interplay of other factors which make it more or less likely for a particular individual to develop UV exposure, to have malignant transformation, and to develop skin cancer. So those could include broad-reaching questions such as what are the environmental protections in a given region around UV exposure? What is the general understanding in the population of the risks of UV exposure? What are the cultural practices of protection from UV exposure? What are the occupational hazards and what is the control of an individual over those occupational safety measures towards reducing UV exposure or screening for skin cancer? So each of these has a direct relationship to the development or the prevention of skin cancer in a particular individual. To look at how we can understand and categorize these issues, 
we have what's called the social ecological model. Um, now this looks at the environment around an individual as an ecosystem, similar to how someone might study an ecosystem in biology around a plant or an animal. We know that as individuals we exist in a broader network than our own selves. No one is an island. So we look at issues not just in an individual patient, but also in their interpersonal relationships with their close contacts in the broader community that themselves and those close contacts pertain to, as well as the greater nation state society region that they are a part of. And each of these levels has different influences to examine in what might be helping to determine how well they are or what disease states they are at risk for. This is a little bit more densely populated slide and it's mostly to demonstrate that each of these levels has a significant amount of complexity to what drives the end effects. So if you start from the right end and looking at the effects, this tends to be what we talk about more in medical care, especially when we're starting to look at that broader lens of population health, is what is the morbidity and mortality of a disease where do we see discrepancies in these metrics in different communities in life expectancy, mortality from, say, cardiovascular disease or diabetes, and morbidity from these conditions? But when we're looking at these, we have to take this broader lens and understand that there are multiple factors preceding those outcomes to examine and that each of those has different levels to understand of what makes up an individual experience. So that difference in morbidity and mortality is preceded by differences in opportunity for healthcare, but also for economic opportunity, for educational opportunity, for health literacy. And then beyond that, those differences are made up of inequities that we see in a broader sense in the communities and population that we're working in. And then if we look at what are the fundamental causes which trigger those inequities, that's where we start to see some of these policy differences and systemic factors which make up the experience that then leads downstream to our differences in morbidity and mortality and life expectancy. So this slide iterates something that I think is really important when we're talking to patients, especially patients who we know to be affected negatively by social determinants, and we're counseling them about different things that we might think of as beneficial for their health. This is Maslow's hierarchy of need, and it holds as this fundamental principle that we have different priority order of needs as individuals. And so if someone is struggling to obtain basic needs for survival, such as food insecurity, housing insecurity, access to appropriate shelter and safety, that that is going to come first by natural order for any individual before they can pursue higher order levels of achievement. So if you're trying to counsel a patient on following, say, a complex regimen for their diabetes, 
or getting to all of their follow-up appointments and they don't know where they're going to sleep that night or where their source of food is going to come from, they're likely going to prioritize those basic survival needs first and you're going to have a very challenging time promoting some of these higher order achievements for them. So that brings us to this more contemplative question of what do these inequities and especially persistent inequities mean for us as a society? Um, the World Health Organization, as part of its initial charter in 1946, declared health as a human right. Um, now, this was a very broad-reaching definition of health that they obtained. It was not only the absence of disease, but also well-being in multiple spheres, including physical, mental, and social well-being. And so when we look at these inequities, especially inequities which persist over decades, generations, really prolonged periods of time, it's important to understand that this exists on a backdrop of our shared societal values as a medical profession being to address health in an equitable way. So to get into a little bit more detail on how these concepts apply to medical care, I want to first look through a lens of disease states that we're familiar with and how examples of those interplay with social determinants of health, and then bridge to talking more broadly about different demographic features which influence those inequities and which show us some of those inequities in our patient population, and finally look at our particular location and community as well as how the concept of community can show us intersections of these social determinants of health. So firstly to talk by disease state, a diagnosis that many of us are very familiar with is that of asthma. Um, we know that asthma is distributed in an unequal way across different communities and there are multiple drivers to identify which contribute to that inequity in both the presence of asthma as well as the severity in morbidity and mortality associated with asthma. So on an individual level, this is probably where we as medical providers are most familiar with discussing with our patients. And we know that individuals can do better or worse with their asthma or are more or less likely to get asthma based on whether they smoke, what their activity level is, what their adherence to medications is, and how easy it is for them to say follow up for appointments and continue to engage with their medical care. Um, that individual then has other factors which we may not be screening for, may not be as aware of in their lives. So in their interpersonal relationships, there's a broader question of, do they have other people in their household which, who may be smokers and they may have exposure through that? Do they have participation from members of their interpersonal network of support, which for pediatric patients may be their parents? For elderly patients, maybe their caregivers who are their children or spouses or friends even. Um, and on a community level, what is the access to health services available to an individual who lives in a certain community? And how 
quickly are emergency response providers able to reach an individual in crisis. This can particularly be an issue in underserved areas who are in rural communities, for example, where response times of emergency services may be significantly delayed compared to someone who lives very close to a tertiary medical center. There are also inequities to think of in the environment which an individual may be spending their living working time. So this include differences in the air quality index. That can be even within different communities in the same city um, where you have different exposure to potential triggers in the environment. Um, as well as safe walkable neighborhoods. So we know that though we might counsel our patients on physical activity, that not all areas are created equal in terms of being able to engage in physical activity outdoors and feel safe. From a societal standpoint, when we look at some of the underlying factors which determine each of these, we know that some of these inequities are driven by things that are codified in policy. So zoning policy helps to determine what types of industries can exist in an area near residential areas. And we know that industries which promote greater air pollution and exposure to toxins tend to locate closer to lower income areas. Um, when we look at environmental policy, how much agency does a community have to advocate for reduced exposure to toxins in the environment versus how much agency and power does a corporation have who might be promoting some of those for the sake of profit? Um, healthcare coverage has similar issues where the provision of resources is not equal across all communities and populations and affordable safe housing, particularly around exposures to toxic elements in lower income housing. We've seen issues related to cockroach infestations, mold infestations in lower income housing and limited enforcement of tenant provisions which are meant to protect individuals from these conditions as well as occupational safety protections, not just what policies are in place to prevent exposure to agents which may produce or trigger asthma, but also how are those enforced and what agency does an individual who works at a low level in an organization have to prevent additional unnecessary exposure to those agents. So asthma is something that we're familiar with as a fixed entity. It's been in the community for quite some time. But I also wanted to look at when we have a new agent or a new issue that moves into a community, where do we see those inequities play out? And so an example of this is the current pandemic of COVID-19. Now there's the pathogen that we're all familiar with of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and its variants. But we also know that that virus has had different impacts in different communities for a variety of reasons. So on an individual level, we can see where different comorbidities, smoking status, likelihood of an individual to participate in gatherings, their occupation and the face-to-face -face exposure through their occupation, as well as their mode of transportation. Each of these can cause them to have greater or less potential exposure to COVID-19 or to have a more severe course in the incidence that they acquire COVID-19. 
From an environmental level, we know that population density is not equal in all communities, that some communities have much more crowded conditions in their day-to-day -day lives, as well as more crowded conditions in household density. If there's a higher cost of living relative to the average income in an area, you're going to have greater crowding in housing and greater number of individuals living in the same household contact structure. So that leads to greater potential exposure. From an interpersonal level, we know that people who have close household interactions are likely to run into some similar issues where they may all have forward-facing occupations because it's what's available to them as a potential resource versus other communities may all have not as forward-facing office-type occupations which don't create as much of an exposure risk. From a community standpoint, we have different cultural norms and expectations, different opinions about the efficacy of vaccines, for example, or tendencies towards gathering in large spaces or avoiding those measures, which may serve to prevent exposure to COVID-19, as well as different resource availability when an incidence would occur. So if you have an outbreak in a population that has limited access to tertiary care resources, we saw this frequently where smaller hospitals were overrun with patients having limited resources to care for a large influx at one time compared to a larger tertiary institution. Um, and finally, we see where policy influences each of these downstream levels. So mask policy in a particular region had direct impacts on the number of cases transmitted. Vaccination policies had direct impact on both number of cases and severity of cases, as well as the public relations and health education, which were conducted by different health departments, state level, federal level of understanding, communication, and enforcement of policies. So this is an example of how if we have a new issue arise, we can still see a very wide disparity in the impact of that health issue in different communities. So to broaden a little bit to talk about different demographics that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis in our patient population and how we see inequities play out across different divides due to inequities and discrimination. Um, so first to talk about racial inequity. Um, so this has impacts on a varied scale for different individuals. And for each of these, it's not meant to focus only on who is disadvantaged or negatively impacted by these differences, but also to remember that for every area where there is inequality, some individuals experience that inequality as advantage and some individuals experience that inequality as disadvantage. And so for an individual level in racial inequality, we know that there is physiologic impact of chronic stress due to experiencing systemic racism and that some individuals will experience that and some individuals are privileged not to have to experience that. Similarly, there is disparate access to opportunities, whether that is financial, academic, or social opportunities in terms of networking resources and what is available in your community. 
On an interpersonal and family level, individuals are likely to experience similar things to other members of their close social network. And so if you are in an advantaged situation, your interpersonal contacts are likely similarly in an advantaged situation and vice versa. If you are in a disadvantaged situation because of these inequities and disparities, likely many members of your interpersonal network are also in that disadvantaged situation, which leads to a cumulative effect which either enhances the benefit that you experience from these inequities or really concentrates the negative impact of these disparities. We see this on a community level, which is also driven by both historical and present discrimination and the effect of de facto segregation, where communities tend to be racially concentrated um, based on historical and current precedents, which tend to move people into communities which concentrate similar with similar. On a policy and societal level, we see where each of these have been influenced and driven by both historical and present exclusion from resources and the effect of systemic racism. This is across one category where we might see these inequities, but there are multiple categories in which people experience different health inequities. One of these that we see commonly refers to socioeconomic status. Now, more simply, this often correlates with income level or wealth, but it is not simply limited to income level. There are broader reaching implications of socioeconomic status that also have to do with the social capital that one might have. So one can have a lower amount of income and still have a certain amount of social capital which allows them to go through life more smoothly than someone with, say, a relatively similar level of income but maybe less networked contacts or less access to a support structure which may buoy them through a period of low income. So for an individual, we see where People with lower socioeconomic status tend to have more limited opportunities, again, both economic, political, and social, as well as in an interpersonal or family level, the impact of this is concentrated in both advantage and disadvantage where, again, the members of a person's social network are likely in a similar situation to themselves. None of these, of course, are universal. But we do see as statistical trends that people tend to group based off of similarities in each of these structures. On a community level, we see where areas are concentrated in either low resource or high resource and that those concentrations also lead to impacts in educational quality, healthcare quality and access. Um, and that each of these are driven by these broader policy and societal realities where the influence and agency in different communities is also unequal because of a cyclic nature of this deprivation or advantage. So we see where there is a greater influence in advantaged communities with both wealth and social connection as well as a greater disadvantage in communities which don't have the same access to those resources. Looking at sex assigned at birth, the disparities here do not mirror in the exact same way as disparities by racial groups or by socioeconomic status. 
we see where because biologic sex is more inherently networked within communities, that the nature of this looks a little bit different. However, disparities still persist by biologic sex. We know that there is differential access to opportunities and unequal access to appropriate health care on an individual level. We also know that on an interpersonal and family level, that the access to opportunities even within the same social and economic strata may be very different based on biologic sex. And some of this is driven by both familial and cultural values. We know on a community level that there are cultural expectation of gender roles and systemic discrimination that either benefits or negatively impacts based on sex assigned at birth. And for policy and societal level, we know that many of these expectations are codified into discriminatory laws and health policies. We also know that in the healthcare field, that many of these categories, including biologic sex, are not adequately represented in medical research, so that the data that is applied in healthcare is less accurate for people of female assigned at birth sex than it is for male assigned at birth. One of the common attributes of many of our patients is a affiliation with a particular religion. Um, so again, where this is another criteria that can either benefit access to resource or can be negatively affected in access to resources based off of discrimination. This has a lot to do with whether an individual pertains to a majority or minority religious status in their particular area. And depending on where you are, that may be different religions in different areas. Um, so in the United States, there tends to be a majority Christian affiliation versus in the Middle East, you may have an area that has a majority Muslim affiliation. And your relative access to resources, social standing, and opportunities may be positively impacted if the political, social, economic, and cultural values prevailing in that area align with you as part of a majority religion, or if they are more exclusionary towards you as part of a minority religious status. On an interpersonal and family level, as well as a community level, we know that a adherence or affiliation with a religious practice can be buoying, can be supportive in individuals, can help them with greater access to community resources, but it can also be isolating. If there's an individual who does not match the cultural expectations of that religion, they may be isolated or excluded from those resources or negatively impacted by that. And then on a policy and societal level, we see where the influence of religion on policy can align with a majority religious status, but can also be exclusionary and discriminatory towards a minority religious status. And then finally, looking at sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, so again, where there are advantages and disadvantages across these lines. And we know on an individual levels that members of the LGBTQ community can have social isolation and discrimination as well as a risk of violence associated with being known in that status. Um, on an interpersonal level, individuals who 
are outside of the cultural expectations of their family and community may experience loss of potential resources and a greater social support network if the family or the community does not accept that status. And similarly, individuals who are perhaps cis-hetero might not experience that and may actually have a greater advantage to access to generational resources and a broader support network. And then on a policy and societal level, we see where that discrimination becomes codified into law and that in some areas, even the existence of LGBTQ individuals is illegal and prosecuted. In others, there is not access to marriage rights. Um, so this is something that we see broader impacts to in the health outcomes in individuals who are either negatively impacted by these systemic inequities or are positively impacted because they don't have to experience them. So to kind of back up for that broader overview, we know that in each of these demographic categories that we have disparate access to resources available. And this happens because of systemic discrimination. We also know that that has broader implications across multiple individuals, an interpersonal network, and a community, which can span over decades and generations. And that we see effects of this in the medical field. So among those are limited representation in medical research, but we are also not immune to the same effects of systemic discrimination across each of these categories in the medical field. So to look a little bit at intersectionality, we know that each of the categories that we discussed has areas of advantage for some and disadvantage for others which make up health inequities. We also know that some individuals are affected by more than one of these elements at the same time and that those do not add up in a simple math equation. You cannot simply look at what someone's socioeconomic status is, what their race is, what their religious affiliation is, and understand the full breadth of their experience. Because that intersectionality has an element all of its own which contributes to health outcomes. So an example of this is in efforts that have been made in black maternal health. So we know that there is significant disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality by race that black mothers experience mortality at a three times higher rate than their white counterparts. And that significance persists despite stratifying the data across socioeconomic status and educational level. So we know that there is a significant impact outside of these other factors on this inequity in experience. On an individual level, we know some factors associated with that include comorbidities, which are driven by a number of those social determinants prior to a pregnancy, as well as different access to pre- and postnatal care, and chronic stress experienced by systemic racism, both inside and out of the healthcare system. This, of course, is contributed to, again, by these larger environmental factors. So that structural racism component that we talked about before, experiencing bias in care providers, the limitations in both access to care and the quality of care that is accessed by individuals. 
And there are likely a number of other factors which contribute to this. This is a shorter list to give an understanding that this is a complex issue that affects many people at intersections of these variable social determinants. So to talk a little bit about that intersectionality. So we know, like I mentioned, that people who have similar resources and similar characteristics tend to group together within a community. And this has an additive effect within a community where some communities experience significant advantage in all of these categories of health outcomes versus other communities collectively experience a greater disadvantage based off of each of these characteristics and social determinants. We know that this concentration of resource inequity is related to both historical and ex present exclusion from resources, especially in the cases of discrimination based on race and some of the other factors that we discussed. We also know that the resource availability affects across multiple spheres. So not just financial, but also social resources, access to education and opportunities for greater impact in agency in a community. We also know that we can measure this. We can measure some of these intersectionalities of risk and advantage in a community. So some different tools that have been built to do those measurements. So one looking at quality of life expectancy and life expectancy is the Childhood Opportunity Index. And another which looks at the potential impact of those overlying events as we discussed, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, but also natural disasters was the Social Vulnerabilities Index. And I encourage all of you, if you're interested, to look at the CDC website for your particular area. There is a map of the Social Vulnerabilities Index. We're going to show the one for Central Ohio, but it's available nationally. So any particular region of the United States, you can see a similar picture description of what is going on in that community. So to show here, I have these side-by-side -side comparison maps. On the left is for Franklin County, which is the county that we're sitting in now in Columbus, Ohio. This shows the Social Vulnerabilities Index for our community. And on the right, we have a map of a concept known as redlining, um, which our source for that, um, for, from their permission, is the Kirwan Institute for Study of Race and Ethnicity, um, and a specific study looking at food insecurity. What I want to draw attention to here is if you look at on the left in the level of vulnerability, the darker purple areas show you the communities at greater risk of impact from an overlaying event such as a natural disaster, pandemic, many different possible events which give a greater highlight to where the consequences may hit harder or may be more protected. So in this instance, we see the highest scores for that level of vulnerability are in the darker purple. And this represents a number of different metrics being combined. Those include things such as income level, number of household members, language spoken at home, whether that's majority language or not, um, as well as a number of other factors which are used to tabulate this. 
And we know each of these individually has been associated with greater, greater vulnerability and impact from events. But when we add those cumulative effects, we start to see a mapping of how these risks really do concentrate in communities and benefits concentrate in other communities. Now on the right, when we look at this map of this concept of redlining, so this is a historical map. Redlining is a process that has been outlawed um, because it was specifically codified discrimination primarily against African Americans and other racial minorities where it was a system to rate so-called risk of lending to certain individuals, um, which we know was purposefully discriminatory, but also labeled communities as either high risk and unlikely to show significant growth and development or low risk and likely to show significant growth and development. And what I'd like to highlight in the comparison between these two maps is where we see that on the map of redlining, the areas in red were considered to be high risk and low likelihood of development or the sort of negatively labeled areas and communities in the same zone of Columbus and Franklin County as the map on the left shows where we have those end markers of risk in a community where we know that these communities have less access to resources that are in darker purple on this map. And we see where areas of red on the right and areas of dark purple on the left have a pretty significant amount of overlap between the two. This shows a little bit of just sort of a picture description of how decisions made historically and across earlier generations have broad stretching impacts to today and the social determinants that we see in our patient populations now. So some of the conclusions from this discussion, we know that social determinants of health are universal across different health states and wellness, and they're relevant to the health outcomes that we study in our patient populations. We know that those health outcomes are more closely related to social determinants of health, even then to the medical care that we provide. We also know that health inequity is largely driven by these social determinants and that the disparities are consequences of these larger factors that we see in our community, in our environment, in our policy, and our societal values, which allow these inequities to continue. Some additional resources that I've found helpful in this topic, depending on format, I like to give a number of different options of how to peruse. Um, so for a documentary format, um, both available through PBS, one is called Unnatural Causes um, and looks at the intersection of each of these factors on what health disparities look like. Um, and another is Frontline on Growing Up Poor in America. Some reading that has been helpful is The Health Gap by Michael Marmot looks at kind of the policy and systemic elements across the board of what drives social determinants. And Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington examines specifically racial inequities in healthcare, the historical and present precedent for these inequities. Um, and then finally, organizations which I utilized in this talk and can be helpful for further information. The Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at OSU thankfully allowed me to utilize some of their resources and can be a good reference for some of these issues, especially locally. Um, the CDC 
looking at the Healthy People and the World Health Organization development goals. I like these for a broad overview, looking at how people who examine population health identify kind of the highest yield drivers to target for health inequities. Because when we start looking at this issue, it can be very, very broad and intimidating. And so looking at what these population health organizations identify, you start to see how some central drivers can be really important with broad reaching implications. And then finally, to look at a more microcosm type approach, the National Community Reinvestment Council has some information about how specific investment in communities can have broad reaching impacts across different social determinants. Perfect. Thank you so much, Kelly. That was a fantastic overview. Um, and I really appreciated the examples you gave for different kind of disease states like asthma and COVID, and then also certain populations like the black maternal health to really highlight how the social determinants of health can make a huge impact on the way their health um, and their outcomes uh, come out. So now knowing how big of an impact it can have on health outcomes, is this something that we should be screening all of our patients for on a day-to-day -day basis? I think it's definitely something that we need to take into consideration in medical care. I think screening specifically brings up some complex issues around anything that can be screened for should be addressed. So if we're going to provide screening tools in a clinical setting, we should also know that we have connections to resources in the community to be able to assist with maybe not all, but at least some of the issues identified. Okay. And then, you know, speaking of screenings, you know, with our time constraints and then with limitations on what we could feasibly offer patients as an intervention if, if they were to screen positive, um, are there a few kind of top social determinants that we should focus our efforts on? I think that depends heavily on the area of practice and the community in which one is practicing. So for instance, we gave asthma as an example. If someone is a pulmonologist or an allergist working frequently with asthma patients, that might be a good opportunity to set up specific partnerships to identify high yield issues which could be intervened on for social determinants. So there's precedent in that example of organizations working with, say, legal aid to do advocacy for tenants for safe and clean housing for mm -hmm. patients who have asthma. So I think identifying what is a prevailing issue in your patient population and tailoring what those target interventions are and those community partnerships to really kind of hotspot target which is the biggest issue which impacts your patients. Okay, that's perfect. Now, it seems like, you know, there, there is some things that we can do on an individual level, but most of the work probably needs to come from a broader kind of public health and policy sector um, standpoint. Um, what are some ways that us individuals can make kind of um, a bigger impact on our patients' day-to-day -day lives? So I think as healthcare providers, we're really on the front lines of talking in our communities and with our patients about the issues that affect them on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think we have a very significant impact in our communities of discussing some of these issues and getting an understanding of what's going on in your patients' lives. And I think that provides a lot of data about what on the ground changes are happening in your communities. And then that also gives grounds for advocacy for patients and at, you know, 
helping to speak out for issues that come up in your patient population that maybe policymakers are unaware of or haven't been focused on in the past. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, what about if you're in kind of a organization, like a smaller organization level, are things like cultural competency training, um, are like little trainings like that, that you could provide your staff, is that useful to help um, improve patients um, level of disparity or um, social determinants? I think we know that a lot of social determinants have their impact long before someone sets foot into a healthcare institution. However, there are elements of disparities which take place within the healthcare setting, and some of those are focused on bias and discrimination in healthcare providers. So I think for that specific area of looking at bias and its impact on access, Mm -hmm. of care, I think can be very important to have appropriate cultural competency training with an emphasis on the appropriate because I think the cultural trainings that are offered tend to run the gamut of their level of utility. Mm -hmm. And I think having some kind of feedback mechanism for the people who will be impacted by that would be very important to ensuring that any cultural competency is meeting its goals. Mm -hmm. That's a good point of the feedback, um, definitely very important. Now, um, so to kind of go back to one of your examples, like on the COVID-19, you mentioned that some things were really directly linked with improvements in, you know, the COVID rates or mortality. Um, so like, for example, masking, are there studies looking at areas that have the masking policy versus other areas that don't that show a clear difference between the two? There are. Um, I would love to be able to quote the specific authors mm -hmm. to you, but I think it's something that's fairly able to be investigated. Um, we know that different areas with different policies had significant impact in terms of case numbers as well as morbidity and mortality. And mm -hmm. a number of papers were written on this topic, especially earlier on in the pandemic before vaccine access was readily available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear because I think it is, you know, um, we're hearing, you know, for example, the, the State Department is focused on social determinants of health and making some policy changes to help improve that. But I think the important part we wanna know is do those policies actually make an impact and how do we measure that? Um, so is that kind of, you know, um, I'm, I guess I'm not as familiar with the work of a public health worker. Is that work that the public health worker would perform? As far as the measurement mm -hmm. of some of these outcomes, Yes, I would say that it depends on the type of intervention for what type of measurement is mm -hmm. most appropriate. So similar to working in quality improvement in a healthcare setting, mm -hmm. you have both outcomes measurements and process measurements, and that exists in population health as well, where some interventions are gauged more by process measurements to see how well a process was implemented, mm -hmm. and other interventions may be gauged by out comes measurements, and that could include things like morbidity and mortality or incidence of a disease in a particular population. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. Um, this is such an important topic, and I know we just scratched the surface of it today, um, but I just really appreciate you coming and discussing this great topic with us, and I think we're all going to have a lot more to think about. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point. Kelly? So 
Um, as we mentioned, this is a very broad topic and can be a lot to take in in one instance. What I think is really important as a healthcare provider is to think about that the window of opportunity that we see with our patients when we are communicating with them is such a small portion of their lives. And we know that each of these factors make up a much greater sphere of what an individual goes through on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think independent of making a significant impact in these, just to be aware and keep your eyes open to the lives that people live outside of our interactions with them can be really important to make sure that anything that we're doing really appreciates that broader context, that we don't know the full extent of someone's lived experience. Perfect. Thanks for joining us today. That's a wrap on 2022. We hope you have a wonderful new year and then join us again next week when Dr. Jim Allen will be taking a break from retirement to guest host our first program of 2023, Cancer Survivorship with Dr. Ashley Parazier. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.